Welcome to the Med Device Careers Podcast. I'm your host, Fran Moriarty. Med Device Careers is building a community shaping the future of healthcare. Each episode, I'll sit down with leaders and innovators in the med device space to discuss their career path, explore their contributions, and share their advice. Join us today at meddevicecareers.com to grow your knowledge, network, and career. In this episode, I speak with Sarah Khalil, CEO and co-founder of CoreMap. Sarah spent years in operational roles at healthcare companies with multiple exits before taking on the role of chief executive. In our conversation, we discuss her experience raising capital, the why behind CoreMap's mission, and instilling a winning culture early on in a company's life. Please enjoy. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you today. Um, you know, I, I like to kind of get an understanding from guests. You know, what was their first sort of exposure to the medical space, to med tech? How did you find yourself drawn to that space? And, and what did that look like for you, that initial opportunity? So I think what's probably really important is what it was preceded by. So I graduated from college in 1981. And I grew up in Vermont and I loved Vermont and I decided I should try to live somewhere else. So I signed up for a month of interviews in Boston and I went to my first interview and they pretty much offered me a job in the interview and I thought, okay, well, I need a job. I'll take this job with very little of forethought to really what I'd be doing. And so I was working in the defense sector, working on shipboard radar systems. And I told myself I probably should stay for two years just because there was this philosophy. It was back when people sent careers at a single job that maybe I wouldn't be employable if I left out so quickly. Poor decision in retrospect, but it's what I decided. So I stayed for two years and then I said I I needed to do something else. So almost two years to the day I left. And I subsequently went on to be recruited by a company out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, And I came up through the quality side of the business, which is an unusual match for a CEO. Uh, But I went to work for this company in Pittsburgh that had many divisions where I was responsible for quality. And one of them was a medical equipment uh, sector. So it was my first foray. And I said, oh, I kind of like working on that better than I like working on guns, bullets, radar systems. And that was really where the passion for me started. Uh, While I was in Pittsburgh, germane to the story, I got married and all of a sudden found myself ready to have my first child. And I was commuting back and forth between New England and Pittsburgh because my husband lived in New England. And so I said, "Okay, it's time to go back to New England because this baby's coming pretty soon. And so long and short was this startup hired me and they were developing a 3D endoscope. So a physician could see in 3D inside the body. It had stereo optic channels. There were eight guys. They hired me six months pregnant and they gave me a crib for my office. (laughs) And so that was my first startup in medical devices. And I've never really looked back. I've had some Uh, As Sheryl Sanders, Sandberg says, it's a jungle gym, not a corporate ladder. Kind of had a few pivots this way and that. I ran my own consulting company for a while when my kids were young, but I've never left the sector. And if you look at it comprehensively, I've grown earlier and earlier in the ideation phase until really this time I'm taking an idea with a patent and figuring it out from then on. Right, yeah, that's really interesting. You know, you, you, 
one one of the things I do here is, you know, individuals, whether they are coming from sort of a, a larger corporate setting or if they start off in a startup, you know, that pull towards towards the, you know, the start of things, if you will, right, where you are really sort of figuring it out in real time. Um, and, and so in your sort of progression throughout, you know, you've sort of held pretty extensive like uh, operating uh, roles, right? Can you walk me through a little bit like so? So. You started in, in the CEO role, and then uh, I think you had a couple of CEO roles. What were the things that you found sort of, you know, that you took away from that, that you are now bringing to your role as CEO, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, as I said, I came up through the quality organization, and I think I really gained my reputation by being somebody that figured it out. And I'd say if you were to say one thing about me, put me somewhere and I'll figure it out. And I eventually grew up to increasing levels of responsibility, managing people around quality initiatives, plant quality, and then eventually was hired as a, it was, I think it was a director of operations was my very first role into that. And I just loved now that there were more, there was more complexity to figuring things out, whereas in quality it was kind of a general theme, and now it's a lot of different things. It's a P&L, it's a service, it's manufacturing, human resources, all of those things. And so that became my niche. And, and what I like to say is I'm learning the body one startup at a time because I had no biological training per se in engineering school. And so I worked in molecular diagnostics, in orthopedics, in women's health. And so my job's just grew with increasing responsibility to eventually a chief operating officer role, which I held four times. And I loved it. I was a person who ran the trains. Things ran on time and the CEO was my right hand. I was there, you know, compliment. They kind of handled outside, I handled inside. We went through IPOs, went through uh, large M&A transactions. And I loved my role. Kind of never really thought about filling the other role. Then after a few exits, uh, I was introduced to somebody, and it's actually a little bit of a funny story. Somebody introduced me to my co-founder at my current company, and they said, she kind of knows what you need to know. He was trying, he really didn't have an interest in forming a company. He wanted to treat his patients. They said, you should talk to her. She knows what you need to know. And I was busy on a new uh, startup, and he says, leave it to me. I find the right person, and she's busy. And in line at the sandwich shop, we just agreed we'd figure out the terms. There was no offer, there was no writing, there was no signatures, there was nothing. And from that moment on, taking responsibility for the formation of everything, seed funding, how to grow a company where people felt that they were the most important thing there. And that's the part that I've loved the most about being in the CEO role is I really get to set the, what the culture of our company will be. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point where operationally, you know, you're you're sort of tasked as the right hand to the CEO of really sort of internal management and making sure, to your point, that the trains run on time. In the CEO role, it's external facing. You know, it, it's you're you're setting the vision for the organization. You're setting it on the trajectory, and you are you know you're the face of that company. And you know, you mentioned sort of capital raising and and. In this sort of handshake deal, if you will, where now you're, you're, you're coming in, walk me through that process a little bit. Capital raising process, what did that look like for you? Did you explore non-traditional uh, financing or uh, pools of capital? I'm curious to hear what that was like. 
It's interesting because I've found that a company's capital raising story is a lot about the fabric of who they are. And I really think that's so true with our company. So we meet, we have no money and hiring people. It's so important to me that I respect that somebody's livelihood. And so you can't hire anybody because I don't know if we're going to be around in two months, three months, six months. So you do everything yourself. And so we set out to raise foundational capital and we convinced five people to invest in Peter and I for a half a million dollars total. And so then, and, and Peter had this concept of how to solve this problem. And I had no idea how difficult it was to do what his, con- like to turn it from an, a patent to an actual physical product. And so we took that money and we started that process. We failed a couple of times. We really tried to learn to fail fast. Uh, so we got far enough through the, and one of the fundamental rules of capital raising is you want to raise just enough so you can say you're worth more. So you give away less of the company right. in this dance of financing. So we raised $500,000 of convertible debt. And then we said, okay, we need some more. We uh, sought an institution to invest in us, which they did for $500,000 convertible debt. And then we found four physician inventors who agreed to invest in us as well for a quarter of a million. So with that 1.25, we set out to show not only was it a really great invention, but we could make it and it could do what it was intended to do. And so we um, was still just myself as the only person who worked for the company, Peter uh, spending his research time supporting the company. So we said, okay, now we have enough data. We can go out and try to raise a series, series A. And so in December of 2019, we got our first $10.5 million term sheet. And I brought in, and this is key to the whole company, is just surrounding myself with really good people in every aspect. If you want a recipe for success, that's it. Get really smart people in the room. So I took my term sheet to somebody who advised me, and they're like, oh, I don't like this term sheet. I don't like this term. They're going to take control of decisions from you and Peter. The valuation was great. And so I went to Peter and I said, I don't support taking it. And we have a great standing joke that he says, she came to me when we had $11 in the bank and said, we're not taking 10.5 million. (laughs) (laughs) And we didn't. And so we went out and then in February of 2020, when this little virus is raising its head, we get a second term sheet out of Northern Italy. And we came to the same conclusion. And we walked from 10.5 again. So now we've turned, we have one point and a quarter that we've spent <laughs> and we walked from $20 million. And so I went to my advisors and they gave me a great suggestion to go to the strategics that you were, or maybe one that you're really close to and see if they'll seed the round. Maybe they'll give you a hundred grand and it'll make people take you a little more seriously. So I looked at my landscape of who I know and the big strategics and I said, here's where I'm going to go. And they said, we've never done that before, but let us check. So they come back and they go, we can do that. And they wanted to diligence it. And halfway through the diligence, they said, we want you to go back to 10.5 and we'll put in half of it. So we ended up with the most wonderful syndicate of Series A investors. I did a panel the other day for some students and I said, those two decisions were among the smartest we made as a company and every one of my investors I one of my favorite things is hiking I say I go on a hike with and I'd have them for Thanksgiving dinner and I want to win with them 
And I don't think that would have been the case. I don't think we would have had the support and the alignment with the first two rounds. And then we came out of the gate on that Series A and we uh, did some studies uh, at Lyric in Bordeaux with Dr. Piaget, had some incredibly compelling data. And we said, we're gonna accelerate a Series B. And we went to the strategics to see if we could get somebody to lead. We had an offer for a lead. And for the first time, we walked from a lead based on valuation. Now putting us, having walked from 30 million, <laughs> what we're still trying to raise to get to 30. Uh, and we ended up with an incredible syndicate that came around us for a Series B. We closed it in January of this year, 20 million. And so, uh, you know, we're now sitting very well capitalized. We have an incredibly focused plan to be into humans. Our goal is by the end of the year, it's incredibly aggressive. Uh, building out a team, but I, I learned in the beginning, I was petrified to take people's money. It was like, what if we lose it? <laughs> like it was incredibly frightening. But now, uh, one of the things that I, I realize is you, you can't possibly change patient care unless you're willing to sign up to that risk. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I think <laughs> it, it, it's great. I heard an interesting sort of inversion where it, when you think about a founder or somebody who is very early stage, oftentimes there's this notion that they're risk takers, right? Or that they're, when in actuality, I think a really strong founder or a really strong leader, they, they see themselves as risk killers, right? Because they need to de-risk as they grow and, and set up milestones. And so when you think about what that looked like for you, and it's interesting because uh, you know, in some of the conversations I've had, you know, you do hear that, you know, wh- whether it's a, a mistake that you make or a mistake that you avoid, oftentimes there's this sense that money's green. And in fact, you know, who you're partnering with, what that relationship looks like, it, it determines sort of the trajectory of the company, right? What kind of, how are they going to be value add? Are they going to put you in touch with the right people? Are they going to help foster this? Because especially in healthcare, I feel like that there is so much upfront work that needs to happen before you can really hit that escape velocity. And it's really all about, you know, can we do this safely? Can we do this efficaciously? You know, like what are the sort of milestones that we need to hit? And if you're, if you don't have the funding to do that, then, you know, you're sort of, you know, dead in the water, right? Being able to sort of have the foresight to see that Yes, we need this capital. We, we're desperately in need of an infusion, but this isn't the right strategic alignment. I think is, it's really fascinating. It it really is. And uh, through the Series B, one person who invested in us did their diligence by having me walk them through the cap table. For the future, whenever I invest in a company, that will be something that I do because you learn about the decisions and you learn about decisions people felt good about, and and decisions where. Maybe they took thinking all money's the same and there wasn't alignment, but I have such trust, faith, respect for every single person on my cap table. And I I made so many mistakes. Believe me, I made so many mistakes. And I didn't know, I'd never done this job before. And so that's one of the things I'll say that Peter and I got right. Yeah. Sort of in that vein, you're based in Vermont. There are certain sort of geographic ecosystems that that arise and whether or not, you know, the people were located in Vermont. I'm wondering if how has things evolved or changed as it relates to maybe startup culture and maybe, you know, venture culture? Are you seeing that there is there is an ecosystem that is supportive 
do you see yourself as sort of driving that? I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are on that. Vermont is an incredible place and it does have an amazing ecosystem now and my fundraising story includes a little part of that. So we're about to close our Series A in a, a local venture arm that also developed this incredible workspace, 150,000 square feet on the lake in Burlington, Vermont, had turned down the investment a couple of times. Time wasn't right. We're about to close and somebody said, oh, I, you know, I made a mistake on my calculations and we were like 150 grand short on a $10 million raise. So Peter and I looked at each other and we're like, okay, well, we'll split this. We don't really want to, <laughs> but we'll split this if we have to. And so I, I sent a text to this VC firm and I said, hey, we ended up like this. Any chance? Principal there uh, texted me back and he goes, we'll take it. And so by way of that, we became part of the fabric of this incredible ecosystem. And if you don't know much about Burlington, Vermont and what's going on there from a venture and innovation perspective, it's really something worth looking at. Uh, Beta Technologies just raised $345 million headquartered in Burlington, Vermont. Amazing initiative that they've got going on. So the, the reason I tell you about this happening is that when we walked away from the strategic in the Series B, went back to our insiders and said, okay, can we lead this from inside? And that fund led the bee. Oh, wow. They stepped up, they led the bee. Fortunately, we got that done at the end of January because I don't think anybody could have predicted what was about to happen to the world and, and venture investing and people all over the world. And so we were incredibly grateful to the Burlington investment community. And actually, they stepped up all over the place. By then, people had heard about us and we had more investors than we knew what to do with when the beat was closing. Yeah, I mean, it's just the confidence of the follow up fund or follow on funding is, is huge. So mm-hmm. when you think about what you're doing, you know, at CoreMap, how do you see it in relationship to the current landscape for for AF? You know, it could be diagnostic, therapeutic innovation. Like, there's a lot happening, right? When you think about how you started, you know, what what you're doing, do you find that the way things are currently, with sort of you know innovations and maybe some shakeups with upstarts and larger strategics, do you see yourself as being even you know, more well-positioned? Do you see yourself as, like, where do you see fitting into that ecosystem right now? So it's a great question. There's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) But I'll let the numbers speak for themselves. It's reported that the AF patient population globally is 33 million. We believe that's underreported and that the advancements in wearables are going to increase that patient population number by identifying asymptomatic patients. So we'll agree to call it 33 million. And if you look in the United States at the number of AF ablations, which is so incredibly surprisingly low, and not just persistent AF, all AF. And it seems to me unfathomable. I think the last number that's reported is 175,000 in a year. And I feel like probably Dr. Reddy and Dr. Spector, you know, how are they not doing 175,000 of these a year? So the reality is this patient population today has few options. There are no options for a cure. We know that it is very small number that a pulmonary vein isolation solves the problem. And so this has been part of our fundraising is there's an enormous unmet need in the AF patient population. And there Cardioversion is a short-term solution. It's demonstrated that drugs are about 45% effective. 
they're expensive, they're difficult to take, and they, they're not solving the problem. So first of all, I'll say there is room for a lot of winners in this patient population. And it would be great to have a lot of different winners to give tools to the physicians to treat these patients. So that's for fundamentals, and it's an enormous opportunity to improve patient care. The way we've done it is different than anything that anybody else is doing. And, and I'll say that there are two parts to our IP. And one of them is has solved the problem of inadequate spatial resolution, and that is the area that your electrodes are recording in the heart. And, and it's an incre- incredibly complex domain and not worth going into the technicalities of it here, but we've solved the problem of spatial resolution and we've, we've done it with micro scale electrodes. If you look at our electrodes versus a leading commercial mapping catheter today, our surface area is about a thousand times smaller. But it's not just that we're small, we're configured in an incredibly unique configuration so that we're looking at microns of tissue. And we do it in a 2D grid. So we can see local activation across a grid, but it's not what we're after for our ultimate solution. So those three things, incredible micro scale, unique electro configuration, and this 2D grid allow us to capture high spatial resolution signals like nobody else has. So if you're an AI company, and there are many of them looking to process signals better, they'll be better with our catheter, no matter what, because we've solved this problem. We've had Dr. Piaget record with our electrodes next to the leading commercial catheters electrodes, and it's night and day. So we've already demonstrated that, and it's why we were successful in fundraising. So that was one problem that we've solved. The other problem that we've solved is sample density. And so if you're mapping local activation, you're dependent upon a single beat because activation in the next beat is different. Mm -hmm. And so we got around the dependency on local activation. And we did so by mapping tissue properties. And tissue properties are a function of the cells in that tissue, which don't change from one beat to the next. And so once you've gone to mapping tissue properties, you can take as many beats and stitch them together in different areas, and you you now can take unlimited samples. You can map as long as you want, you know, effectively. Um, You wouldn't. And that's how we've solved the problem of sample density. So, and those are really fundamentally the two things that have prevented innovation in this area. And so our first innovation will benefit anybody, your Volta, your Rhythm AI, and you're looking to manage signals differently, look at them differently, and analyze them differently, will provide you better input. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think, um, I mean, that to me is particularly interesting. And I remember listening to a clip from Dr. Spector and his analogy on creating a topographical map to determine mm-hmm. water location if, it, you know, in the, this circumstance, you couldn't see the water, right? Which I think is really fascinating. Yes, it's his analogy. He, and it, I think it plays well, why it resonated with you. And so what we're looking for is what area of the heart can support fibrillation? because there are driver sections and there are follower sections. And so we have the ability now with this high spatial resolution and unlimited sample density to identify what are the areas that can sustain sustain fibrillation so that we're gonna take the field away from 
scorched earth, carpet bombing, massive ablation, we're going to say this patient has this ability to sustain fibrillation coming from this tissue. Here's where the ablation lesion set is. Right. You know, there have been several companies that have you know tried to map chronic AF, and it's been difficult to do so. And I think what I understand of, of CoreMap's technology is particularly compelling. I'd be curious to like to get a little bit more into like the why. Why focus on this area, which is a particularly challenging one, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about like opportunities for putting aside sort of the, you know the AF market, this in particular seems like a heavy lift. Wanted to ask a little bit about the origin of the technology and how you see your mission. That is a terrific question, and we didn't just come up with the this innovation, invention, patent portfolio. So Dr. Peter Spector is my co-founder, and he spent 20 years researching the mechanisms of AF. And he did it because he wanted to treat his patients. So this is born out of a desire to improve patient care. And we are both aligned on on that. And it's part of what we've looked for in our investors is investors who will support that. We had an offer to sell the company in 2019 for a lot of reasons, we didn't think it was the right offer. One of the key reasons was we doubted whether the technology would ever treat a patient. Mm. And that's important to yeah. both of us. And we're, we have the luxury of having that be a key criteria for us. So the reason that we've gone after AF is really this is what Peter's research uh, career has been dedicated to. A lot of people have asked that question. AF is the brass ring in terms of even a, a market opportunity for for Peter, it's the brass ring in terms of solving a very large problem, right. and it's less about valuation than it is for him about solving the problem. So the way that we've messaged that in our fundraising history is that there's a hedge to this investment. We're after AF, but let's say for some reason we're wrong, and we don't like to use that phrase very often, but let's say we were wrong. We will be the best mapping system out there, and we've already demonstrated that. We've already demonstrated our ability to record incredibly clear, unambiguous signals during AF, and we've done it in humans, and we've done it in animals. We feel if for some reason we faltered at the brass ring, it will be the best mapping system out there, and there are large strategic companies that don't have a mapping system, and they need them. So that's kind of the why it comes out of uh, Peter's passion and his research and how we look at it from a value opportunity. Right. Again and again, you know, in these conversations, the, the patient centricity that, uh, you know, I hear is as being sort of the underlying motivation is it's, it's what's needed, right? I think it, it's what's going to lead to success at the end of the day. So, you know, you've raised your Series B. What's next for for you guys, what, what are you currently you know, working on? How do you think about what's that next milestone that you're looking to hit? You know, how do you start to think about you know, inhuman? How do you think about building a team? How do you think about culture? Walk me through that a little bit. Great, I'm gonna take the culture part first because sure. I love that question. I was telling Katie on our way up here that because she noticed my sneakers, or I pointed out my sneakers. So we closed our Series B and to celebrate it with the company, I really wanted to say something. We have new people, you know, it was, Peter and I for years, and we now just reached 20 people on our team across clinical, software, operations, hardware, systems, 
signal processing, uh, a broad, talented team, and new people. And it's so important that they get that same thing that Peter and I feel. So we curated a package that went to everybody's home. And it started with the fact that we're noble. We're, we're based in science. We're data-driven. We're brutally honest with ourselves. And everybody got a pair of noble sneakers. And then we added to it a pair of darn tough socks and said we were persistent. Our persistence will outlast anybody else. We get up earlier, we last longer, we work harder. And then the last thing in it was a custom made chocolate heart. And it said, and we do it with heart. We do it with our patient's heart in mind. We do it with our own hearts, our team's hearts. And so we are noble, we're persistent, we're darn tough, and we're full of heart. And that's in everything. And when we sometimes have a decision we're trying to make, and it ultimately gets to me, because I'm very much about letting the team make decisions, but occasionally they say, okay, we really can't arrive at this one. Say, okay, we'll step back. What's in the best interest of the patient? And it's usually pretty easy when you do that. That's great. I love that story. You need that that level of in the trenches, right? When you're when you're starting out, and I think that will evolve as you scale. But I think keeping the that flame, right, is is really foundational to um, to driving you know a, a company through an unknown landscape, right? An unknown landscape that every day you're a new company. Your whole goal is to change. If you're a large company, to some extent, you're trying to stay the same. Right. And you're the exact opposite. And so every there's so many little, incredibly minuscule things that we do so that if a recruiter calls somebody on our team, they say, oh, I would never leave. You know, it's so many little things. I can't even begin to describe how much that goes into who we are as much as how we develop the software, how we develop the catheter, who we deal with. Yeah. So so where are you at in the commercialization process right now? So it's, as you said earlier, it's a long process. And uh, what's more important in what we're doing than in other initiatives that I've done is that it's less meaningful to demonstrate FDA approval. What really matters is how can you improve patient outcomes? And so that's what our development path looks like. And so I mentioned that we have data in humans. So our data in humans is a two-site US study where we are collecting data from a patient whose chest is open, permanent AF, going in for some procedure. And we record AF data, incredibly unambiguous data for these persistent AF patients. And so we now have that body of data. So we've got that study ongoing. Uh, and that's really about driving development. Mm-hmm. It's not about improving, showing improved outcomes, outcomes or anything. There's no therapy. It's just data collection. And we're following a development path now that will get us in humans. Our goal is to be enroll our first human patient by the end of the year. As a corporation, we have one goal, and that's it. So everybody knows what it is. It's cascaded to every department. So by quarter, you know, you got to show up if you're software and you have to have this by the end of March. And so that if you ask what's next for us, that's really it. And that's the, the first patient in the first of three pilot studies. The first one will be an AF mapping study, observational. We will record, record data. The next one will be a pre-pilot ablation study and then a larger 12-month outcome ablation study. That's exciting. It is exciting. (laughs) It is very exciting. That's great. So one of the questions I I like to ask is if there's a book that you're currently reading or one that you've read in the past that has, you know, a a particular 
you know, impact on you. It could be professional or personal. So as I said in our conversations beforehand, this was the hardest question because <laughs> I love to read. My books fall into three genres. One is historical fiction I really like, and, and sometimes just history. Uh, and there's an, an aspect of the historical books that I've read that I realized that there's, I can give you a couple of examples. I love to read about people who did something really hard. Uh, David McCullough's book about the Wright brothers and how hard it was. And he, I flew here on this gigantic airplane and I think of those guys at Kitty Hawk and people saying they were crazy. And so the ability to say, this is hard and you're gonna have setbacks, but to stay focused, cause you're going to, particularly when you're doing something like we're doing that's incredibly disruptive and they're gonna be quiet, lonely times in this journey, but to stay strong. And, and so I like those sort of books that give me the courage to continue doing what we're doing. Another one which was incredible is The uh, Last Days of Night, and that is uh, The Patent Wars Between Edison and Westinghouse. Mm -hmm. Fascinating book. A couple of other history books that I like, The Lady in Gold, which I happen to be reading now. And I'm reading this one because I saw the movie and it's just an incredible. And this one has something that I think maybe feeds another part of who I am as a leader. And that is just my social conscience. And uh, one thing I didn't mention is that I think it's maybe four years ago, I went back to law school. It was a focused on med device and pharmaceutical law, but I was lit up by constitutional law and really was a, a time for me where I became a I would say just a much more socially conscious, complete person. And so I, I like reading those books that make me realize that just because people became equal by a law doesn't mean it makes up for the years that they weren't equal. So I read books like that. Oh, and then there's, there's just organizational behavior books. Um, I saw Think Again by Adam Grant. Just how do you avoid groupthink? How do you raise a team of people who think in a complete way. And so th those are my kind of general genres of books I'm always reading. And I often, I said I was a hiker, I listen to books when I'm hiking a lot. Where do you go hiking? I, I, I live in Stowe, Vermont, yeah. and so I, um, and I have a couple dogs. When you take something like on, this on, it's seven days a week. In some ways it feels like 24 hours a day. I told somebody, first you're trying to make this company, it's a little bit like having a child. And then you have the child, and now you're just trying to keep it alive because it has no sense of, and then it gets to be a toddler and you're trying to keep it from killing itself. And so one of the ways that I manage the intensity of the role is I try every day to get out with my two dogs on a mountain somewhere. And I'm oftentimes listening to a book while I do that. That's great. As somebody who grew up in Vermont, I can, I can speak to the restorative element of that for sure. So the last question I'd ask is when you think about your career, where you've ended up, there's advice that you could give to somebody who could be an employee or um, you know, who's looking to you know, develop, continue in their development, somebody who's looking to enter the medical device space. You know, what would that look like? And you know, if there was it maybe you know, advice that you would have given yourself you know, before, before starting. Thank you. And, and I've often wished that that was the case. And so I, I would say that n number one, you're gonna put so much of yourself into something, do something with meaning. And right next to that is look very carefully at the team that you're gonna throw your weight into. Do you want to win with them? And that I probably had more ability to step out of rules where either the team 
wasn't the team I wanted to win with or I wasn't doing something of meaning. But I think I was, a, a, you know, I was raised pretty frugal, two parents who grew up in the Depression. I think I, I just didn't realize I probably could have stepped out and looked a little harder. And, and so that's about selection. And then once you get in, you know, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And to show up and, and give yourself completely because you've decided that you care about the people you're doing something with and it means something. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's, uh, you know, kind of going back to this notion of having that mission driven focus that in the trenches mentality, that's where you're able to overcome some of the, to your point, the hardships, because running a company, you know, a startup in particular, there's a lot of unknowns and there's a lot of, to your point, peaks and valleys. So, you know, being able to sort of, I think, bring that to where you are, right? It allows you to weather that stuff a little bit with a little bit more intention, right? And I got to live it through because I had a daughter who ended up pretty much in the same role. She was living in the city and she was in a job that she didn't really like the people that she was showing up with every day. It wasn't that she didn't like them, but it didn't excite her and didn't love what she was doing. And I said, listen, leave it. Life is way too short. You just never know. Come home, waitress, do whatever and figure it out. And she is in a job she loves with amazing people. And so I I did get the the opportunity to pay it forward. That's great. (laughs) Well, listen, Sarah, this was great. I really appreciate your time. I think that there's a lot here that's going to be of real value to people listening. So. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. If you enjoy hearing conversations like this one, please subscribe to the MedDevice Careers podcast, leave a review, and recommend to a friend to help spread the word. Are you searching for a new career, looking to hire the next MedDevice star, want to grow your network, or are simply looking for a reliable source of MedDevice news and insights? MedDevice Careers is creating a platform for professional development and opportunity, cultivating growth through engaging content and conversations, and connecting MedDevice professionals across the globe. Go to meddevicecareers.com and create a profile today. You can also follow MedDevice Careers on all social platforms, and I can also be found on Twitter at PaceToBeat or on LinkedIn, where I'll share what I'm reading and learning as I continue to grow my own career. Thanks again.